Conflict is an almost daily reality of leadership, but occasionally it really spirals out of control. In this episode, how to find your way out when you're way beyond healthy conflict. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 529. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Leaders are, of course, handling so many kinds of complexities inside their organizations. And one of those complexities that is ever-present and once in a while becomes very present is conflict. How do we handle conflict? And perhaps even more importantly, how do we respond to it, especially when major conflict emerges? Today's guest is going to help us to navigate that more effectively, understand the roots of major conflict, and also give us the invitation on what we can do when it emerges inside our organizations. I'm so glad to introduce to you Amanda Ripley. She is an investigative journalist and a New York Times bestselling author. She spent her career trying to make sense of complicated human mysteries, from what happens to our brains in disaster to how some countries manage to educate virtually all of their kids to think for themselves. Her first book, The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why, was published in 15 countries and turned into a PBS documentary. Her next book, The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way, was a New York Times bestseller. And her most recent book is High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. Amanda, so glad to welcome you to Coaching for Leaders. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. Good to be here. I loved this book. It, it, it was an unexpected page turner in that your ability to tell stories is really beautiful. And one of the stories that you tell in the book is the story of a beautiful natural phenomenon we have here in Southern California called the La Brea Tar Pits. And I think it's a wonderful analogy for a distinction you make between good conflict and high conflict. Could you share that, uh, that analogy with us? Sure. I'm glad you like that one. That's, that's one of my favorites. And uh, yeah, one of the things I have written right on my wall, it's a quote from Jonathan Haidt. It says, the human brain is a story processing machine. <laughs> that's why I always try to remind myself, use stories. It's easy not to. Yeah. Um, so the tar pits, the La Brea tar pits is located right off of Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles, down the street from an international house of pancakes. And <laughs> yes, it, uh, it's, uh, it looks like a small, dark lake, but it's actually a natural asphalt spring that's been around for many thousands of years. And scientists have found more than 3 million bones trapped in the depths of these pits, including you know, skeletons of mammoths and sloths and more than 2,000 saber-toothed tigers. So it's, it's literally a living quagmire that's sort of been gurgling up from the ground since the last ice age. And, and here's how it happened. Here's how we end up with 2,000 saber-toothed tigers in the same small patch of ground. So tens of thousands of years ago, a large mammal like a bison must have lumbered into the tar pits and gotten stuck. And then it starts grunting in distress, understandably, 
which then attracts predators like a pack of wolves. And then more creatures arrive and all they get, all of those creatures get stuck, right? And eventually, slowly over months, those carcasses all sink out of sight. And that's how you end up with three million bones trapped in this pit. And the reason I'm, I'm talking about this is because it's an excellent analogy for what I call high conflict. High conflict is a trap, just like the La Brea tar pits. It draws us in. It's really hard to resist. And then once you get in, you get stuck. Like it's very hard to get out and it gets more and more crowded each day. And all the things you do to get out that seem reasonable usually make the problem worse. So <laughs> that's the analogy. And just to get more specific, high conflict is the kind of conflict we're seeing a lot of today. It can start small, but gradually sort of takes on a life of its own. Our brains behave differently in this kind of conflict. We become really certain of our own righteousness and start to make big measurable mistakes about those who disagree with us. And eventually, almost everyone in high conflict suffers to different degrees, which is distinct from what I've come to know as good conflict, which can also be you know, stressful and heated and uncomfortable, but it goes somewhere. There's a sense of movement. There's, there are questions that get asked. You're not stuck the way you are in the tar pits. And generally, good conflict is actually a much better way to make change and just sort of better for the soul. And there's a bunch of examples in your research of people who really are, in some cases, experts in conflict. And yet, when they get into these situations where all of a sudden there's this high conflict situation or a, the, the quote unquote tar pit in their organization or in their community, they fall victim just like everyone else does, don't they? Yeah, it's, it's really humbling. Um, it's really hard to resist the magnetism of high conflict. And there are lots of understandable sort of evolutionary reasons for that. And it helps to be aware of the signs of high conflict, but anyone can get trapped. You know, that's the, that's the lesson that I learned from watching you know, a conflict expert who knew more about conflict than I will ever know has helped thousands of clients through really difficult mediations. And when he ran for office in his tiny town in Northern California, as he put it, it took about an eighth of a second for him to get sucked into the high conflict in his neighborhood. And he lost, you know, two years of his life and peace of mind to this high conflict, which seemed really inconsequential, you know, to an outsider. But then, you know, he realized what had happened and he systematically extracted himself from the tar pits and got out of high conflict. Uh, so it can be done, but it's best to sort of avoid it altogether if you can. Yeah, well, and let's maybe see if we can zero in on, a, on both of those things a bit of how to avoid, but also when we find ourselves in the tar pit, which we all do, right? How do we extract ourselves and, and the people around us maybe? One of the other distinctions, which I thought was really interesting, between good conflict and high conflict is surprise versus predictability. And I think on its face, like if if you had asked me before reading your book, I would have said, oh, good conflict is predictable. High conflict, that's the surprising thing. And it turns out it's the exact opposite. Could you share more about that? Hmm, it's interesting. Yeah. Like right now, if I look at most political headlines, if I sort of scroll through them on my phone, 
I can actually predict what the story will will say, right? There is there's very little that's surprising because we are locked in this intractable political conflict as a country, right? So you're right. While it seems like, oh, high conflict is combustible and volatile, and it can be, right? It actually is also extremely sort of uh, crushingly predictable. So, so the way I got into this is about four years ago, I just felt like we were surrounded by so much conflict in politics and the news on social media that just wasn't that interesting. Like it wasn't going anywhere useful much of the time. And so I started hanging out with people who study conflict as a system, especially really, you know, wicked conflicts. And what you start to see is that there are like these interlocking forces and they all kind of operate on autopilot in high conflict. And so at that point, nothing surprised me anymore about the political conflict we're in, which Uh... isn't to say that it got any better in my head, you know, still very disturbing, but it, it made sense in a way that it hadn't before, because in high conflict, the normal rules of engagement sort of don't work and, and normal journalism doesn't work. So it was it was really useful to kind of see see that overlay. I mean, high conflict, it's kind of like gravity is how we think of it. It's like it pulls everything down. But, you know, until you know about it, it's, it's very hard to navigate. There's a number of things you identified in your research that you refer to as fire starters for high conflict. And one of them is humiliation. What is it about humiliation that is so caustic? Yes, I'm so glad you brought this up because humiliation, I'm now convinced, is like the most underappreciated force driving high conflict in politics, in international affairs, in companies, you name it, gang violence, domestic violence. So humiliation, right, is the concept that you were up high and you were forcibly brought low, right? Mm. Um, And we know from the research that there is something profoundly painful, and we actually process it in the same parts of our brain that process physical pain, something profoundly painful about this kind of ostracism or humiliation, so it's really powerful and dangerous. There's a psychologist and physician named Evelyn Lindner who studies conflict and war, and she calls humiliation the nuclear bomb of the emotions. Wow. So uh, it's something that I've learned to become very wary of. You never want to leave your opponent feeling humiliated because you are basically handing them a weapon. <laughs> And it will make the conflict worse, if not now, then, then later. And there's actually a great Nelson Mandela quote where he says, there's no one more dangerous than an enemy you've humiliated, even if you've humili- humiliated him rightly. It's really interesting because I'm thinking about in situations I've been in organizations and watching clients go through situations that there are times that... I think all of us have had that desire and even followed through on like wanting to sort of humiliate someone because it just felt right in the moment, either personally mm-hmm. or professionally. My sense is as though that oftentimes it's not intended, that we mm-hmm. end up humiliating someone and we don't even have a clue that we've done it. And it seems like that happens a lot in organizations. Is there a distinction 
in the research between intention as far as how humiliation shows up and triggers a, a fire, as you call it? Ah, this is the this is what makes humiliation so diabolical because it is not objective. I mean, all of our emotions are, you know, influenced by our culture and our experiences and our, the norms, but humiliation is very slippery to your point. So during World War II, guards in concentration camps would order prisoners to make and remake their beds until they were perfect. Uh, as Holocaust survivors told psychologist Nico Frieda, and male Holocaust survivors said they felt humiliated by that experience. But the female survivors did not feel humiliated. They interpreted it differently hmm. as another indignity among many. It was obnoxious, it was harassment, but it wasn't humiliation, right? So you see how your identity, in this case, maybe as a man, informs what is humiliating. Like to be humiliated, you have to feel like you were up high and you were forcibly brought low, which is why you're right. It's so tricky. You can say something and not realize that it will be humiliating. And leaders or conflict entrepreneurs can frame things as humiliating in order to galvanize support or to inflame conflict. It's a very effective way to throw jet fuel on conflict by framing things, describing things as humiliating, even if, you know, maybe they weren't. What's an example of a of a way someone might frame that. And I also want to ask you about conflict entrepreneurs because that's a fascinating, fascinating concept too. What's maybe an example of that where someone would use humiliation, maybe without even realizing it, and frame something that way where then it, it might spark something more? Well, let's start with one where they did realize it, which would be <laughs> after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, Osama bin Laden released a statement that said, what America is tasting now is something insignificant compared to what we have tasted for scores of years. Our nation, and he means the Islamic world, has been tasting this humiliation and this degradation for more than 80 years. Its sons are killed, its blood is shed, its sanctuaries are attacked, and no one hears and no one heeds, right? So there's some truth to what he's saying. And you see how he's sort of using this sense of degradation, humiliation, right, to kind of stoke this feeling of righteousness. And so this happens a lot in, 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 in politics, and it's something to sort of watch out for. So that's very intentional, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's different than what you asked. But I wanted to just first, sometimes it's really not hard to, to see, particularly in, in like violent conflict or big sort of in, in situations where leaders are really exploiting conflict. But other times, to your point, somebody could make fun of what a bad golfer I am, right? And it would not be humiliating to me at all. Like it would just roll off of me because I've only been golfing twice in my life and I don't care <laughs> about it really at all. Like it was pleasant, it was fine, but I have no identity connected to it, right? So part of it is knowing people well enough to know what they hold dear, which is hard to do, right? I mean, you can't <laughs> always know everything about someone. And and also it's like in the tone, right? It's like there is a difference as we've all noticed between, you know, 
a little teasing, a little nudge and humiliating someone. So if it's public, right, that's more likely to be humiliating. So anything on social media would count, obviously, <laughs> as public. So anytime it's done in front of an audience, um, that's often a, a component that can make something feel humiliating, even if it's not what you intended. And it, I so appreciate you highlighting both of those things, thinking about it being tied to a person's identity or a group's identity and it being done maybe in a public forum. And I, I think sometimes organizations, and I'm, I'm not thinking of the reference at this moment, uh, but organizations will frame, it's a, it's a us versus them thinking about competitors or thinking about the other region or the, uh, the other office. And that really sets up an environment where you're more likely to have high conflict emerge because you have someone who's in a position of influence who is then framing these conversations around you know people's identity and moving them lower and doing it publicly and all those mm. things you said you know it's really uh it, it, it was something for all of us to watch out for yeah i mean i i think you're kind of hitting on binary group identities right like anytime you sort humans into two opposing groups you raise the chances for high conflict, right? That doesn't mean you can never do it. Obviously, competition can create a lot of motivation and it can be healthy, but it's important to realize that there's just like decades of research all over the world that show when we humans are sorted into two groups in particular, we tend to behave badly in conflict. <laughs> and you can you can sort of feel it, right? Like I coached my son's recreational soccer team for many years until the pandemic actually. And I remember like I had to actively suppress, you know, my emotions to crush the other team in the game. <laughs> a bunch of kids, like it's recreational soccer. Like not even the players cared as much. So I mean I did usually succeed in suppressing that, but it's like there is something deeply primal, right, about your group and their group. And when you pit them against each other, just be careful. Be careful because that is one of the fire starters. You know, you mentioned there are these, these conditions that tend to activate high conflict. And one of them is humiliation. And one of them is, you know, false binaries, dividing the world into two groups or, or hundreds of millions of people into two political parties, right? It, it, all the complexity collapses. And, and that's actually a good lead into some of the ways of getting out of major conflict. And, and one of them is being able to, if we can, resist some of these binaries. What's an example of a way you've seen uh, people, as, as you talk to folks for the book and did research, that you've seen people be able to resist some of that binary, that us versus them? Yeah. So the more relationships you have across these different divides or categories, the harder it is to stereotype and kind of caricature each other, right? But that's hard to do, particularly in politics now, as we don't tend to live and work and know each other as well uh, across political divides. But we know, just to take an example at scale, in countries that have more than two political parties, there tends to be less polarization after you control for other things. People tend to trust the electoral system more. It just doesn't allow you to sort of villainize millions and millions of people into an other, because there's also this other other right over there. Uh. And more sort of a smaller scale example would be organizations or companies that 
if they have groups, they intentionally kind of scramble them every so often. So, you know, anyone who's worked for a company, you know, as I have where uh, when I worked at Time Magazine, there's a headquarters office in New York City, and then there's bureaus all over the world, right? And you go to the bureaus and there's a lot of resentment for the headquarters, right? And people really build intimacy and connection with each other by, you know, creating that us versus them at the headquarters, right? So one way to address this is to literally like clockwork, have people spend two or three weeks switching places, right? Like, you know, the New York, the people in Brussels go to New York and the people in New York go to Brussels and literally just switching it up. So it gets harder. And, and this happened by accident. And I described this in the book when I was at time, the one of the us versus them groups was the writers versus the editors, right? Which just happens at every, every outlet. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we, the writers think that we're super creative and clever and that the editors are cutting all of our artful turns of phrase and making things too short. And that's just a common gripe. And one time the editors all went away on a retreat, which had never happened. And so they put the writers in charge of the magazine for like four or five days. And so we each had a section and we literally sat at the table where they normally sat and had the morning meetings and had to make decisions about which stories ran and who was assigned to what. And it was like this incredible, first it was euphoric, right? Because finally, <laughs> finally we were in charge. <laughs> and then there was like a crash because you realize that you have to compromise at some point, you know, that you have to make assignments you don't really want to make to get the right mix or deal with personal hurt feelings or, you know, there's just all these things that you can't appreciate until you switch places. So, um, <laughs> so that's sort of a, a silly example, but it, it did give me great compassion more to the point. It made it harder for me to just glibly blame <laughs> an editor for something, at least for a little while, it's kind of a inoculation against uh, scapegoating. I have seen organizations do this really well, where maybe it's a, a brief rotation, or it's a long-term rotation, or it's even the intention of how can we get people talking to each other and starting to build relationships that's outside of our quote-unquote team uh, or or particular geography. And it really, it really is a great antidote to some of this. Of if you have people who have those experiences and those relationships, it really does make a, a big difference. And uh, one of the other terms that emerges in this book, and you said it a bit ago, is conflict entrepreneurs, and that a, a effective way to work your way out of high conflict is to distance yourself from them. Could you explain what a conflict entrepreneur is and then you know, why we'd want to create the distance? Yeah. So a conflict entrepreneur is a person or a company or a social media platform that really exploits and inflames conflict for their own ends, right? It could be profit, right? But it also could be power. And very often I find it's for uh, purpose or attention or camaraderie, right? A sense of belonging. So those things are just as important as profit in motivating conflict entrepreneurs. And sometimes with violent conflict, it's a motivation that comes from within, right? So I, one of the people featured in the book is a former gang leader named Curtis Toller from Chicago. And he talks very powerfully about his own motivations as a conflict entrepreneur for many years, locked in a sort of vendetta with a rival gang in Chicago. And, you know, on the one hand, there's this sense of purpose that you get from, from this long historical rivalry. 
And that's on the one sort of surface level. And then below that, and maybe more subconsciously, he says, was the desire for profit. You know, it was in his interest to keep the conflict going because he didn't want to have to compete with the gangster disciples to sell narcotics in his territory, right? So there's a profit Uh. motive. But then even underneath that, he says, was his internal conflict, having witnessed a huge amount of violence particularly towards his mother, who was in you know, a series of abusive relationships when he was little, having been exposed to that kind of trauma, never had any way to deal with it or talk to anyone about it, really left him looking to spread that pain around, right? To find ways to, to cope with that internal conflict. So for him, what he tells the young men and women he works with today in Chicago to prevent violence with an organization called Chicago Cred is, look, until you deal with that internal conflict, you're going to find that you can't stop the external conflicts. So it can go very, very deep with conflict entrepreneurs. And sometimes it's less, you know, it's less complicated. But in any case, the thing I always try to remind myself is, you know, we all have a conflict entrepreneur inside of us. As, As a journalist in particular, it's very easy for me to exploit conflict, right? To, to mm. sort of, to write a rant or a screed that really pushes that outrage button is much easier in a lot of ways than to write something more true to life. And being aware of that. So when I say distance yourself from the conflict entrepreneur, sometimes that's physically distant. So for Curtis, he literally moved across town when he was trying to shift out of high conflict and that helped a lot. But for other people, it's changing who's on your Twitter feed, Right. And for other people, it's being aware of your own tendency to sort of incite or inflame or delight in every twist and turn of some conflict, whether it's personal or professional or political. As you talk to people who had success of being intentional, of creating some of that distance, was there any common indicator that would come up for them in the moment where they would recognize, oh, this is maybe a person or institution organization that is not serving me anymore this or that is inflaming this conflict. I just wonder, like, for the people who figure this out, is, is there something you notice that they tend to do or tend to see as an indicator? Yeah. You know, what Curtis says is, you know, sort of watch out for any time there's a better than and a less than. As he puts it, uh, whenever there's that sense of supremacy, there's room for war. So that's something to listen for in the language people use, right? Also, language that seems more sort of grandiose than really would be appropriate. So people who describe describe like a, a small political campaign as like, you know, a fight to the death and talk about killing the other side, right? Like it, those sound like, oh, obviously they're being hyperbolic, but those words really can be a red flag that there's something deeper going on here and that you you may be dealing with somebody who's getting something out of that sense of purpose in the conflict that may not actually serve the mission, right? Whatever that is. And that's probably the most diabolical pattern you see across all kinds of high conflict is that people in high conflict eventually start to mimic the behavior of their adversaries, usually without realizing it. To different degrees, of course. So in the case of Gary Friedman, the conflict expert who ran for office, he found that you know he started out with noble intentions. He wanted to make politics less toxic and more inclusive. And within months, 
he had made it more toxic and less inclusive, right? So that's that's the danger of letting yourself give in to high conflict because it starts to create its own reality and it has its own momentum. And it goes right back to humiliation. I'm mean, thinking about what you just said and like the tendency of the, the, that power difference and bringing people up or down. I mean, it's just, it's really interesting. Um, one of the other invitations that I've heard you make is that it's way easier to create a new identity outside of conflict than it is to get rid of an old one. And I think that's such a key point. Um, could you say something about that? Yeah. So often we want people to abandon their conflict identity, whether it's as an extremist to an ideology or a gang member, right? And and the research shows, or even you know, a hyper political partisan. The the research shows that it's actually quite difficult to ask people to give up that identity, but you can revive a latent identity that's outside the conflict, often as a parent or a child, or you can create a new identity that is about solving some problem that, again, is outside the conflict. So one of the places that has a lot of painful experience trying to do this at scale is the country of Colombia, right? That's had, uh, you know, just half a century of civil war and is still having a lot of political violence. But they, they've they tried all these different things, right, to get people to voluntarily leave the conflict, to leave the various guerrilla forces, particularly the FARC, that were fighting against the government. And many of those things, of course, failed uh, in many ways. <laughs> but one of the ones yeah. that I talk about in the book that I saw is really interesting was this public service announcement that they would air during soccer games involving Colombia's national team. So they knew that guerrilla members listened to those games pretty religiously on the radio in the jungle. Um, so even though they were fighting the government, they still had a lot of pride in the Colombian national soccer team. Huh. And so right there, you're already, you're already kind of lighting up a different identity, right? So that's a good moment. <laughs> to try to call people out and welcome them outside of the conflict if they want to come out. And so looking specifically at those ads, there's this researcher named Juan Pablo Aparicio who did this very clever experiment where you could track how many people had voluntarily left the conflict from the FARC each month between 2001 and 2017 using the government's database of uh, desertions, right? Of people who had deserted. And what he found is that Whenever one of these ads ran during a national team soccer game, it led to 20 extra guerrilla members demobilizing the next day, which was 10 times the daily average for desertions. Wow. And over the course of nine years, you know, <laughs> that adds up. And uh, he actually believes that the soccer campaign demobilized more people than the formal peace deal signed with the FARC in 2016. So it's really interesting because even within that, what he found was that the most powerful public service announcements were the ones inviting people to come home and be with their family. And we're saving a seat for you, son, to watch the soccer game. You know, very simple, but again, they're lighting up this identity as a child or a parent or, you know, a grandchild. And that identity is really powerful, even in high conflict. Leaders are always learning, they are growing, and they are changing their minds. As you've researched this book and talked to all the folks you've talked to around the world, 
What's one thing you changed your mind on, Amanda? Oh, so many things, but I want to give you one that I feel like people could use like right away, um, which is the concept of a magic ratio. So in the research on conflict, whether it's marital conflict or, you know, arguments over abortion or gun control among strangers, consistently you see that it's important to have at least a three or sometimes five to one ratio of positive interactions for every negative. And if you have that kind of, you know, balance in the bank, so to speak, of positive over negative, then you tend to have more resilience when conflict flares up. One of the people I interviewed was an aspiring astronaut who has done one of these deep space simulations with strangers in under strain in tight spaces. And what they did, because they knew that the chances were for conflict were so high, they intentionally created that magic ratio every day. So they would do things like exercise as a group, not leave anyone out. They would have like taco Tuesdays. They would celebrate every birthday. They would even have like these fortnights where everyone would pull their mattresses out and they'd use blankets and create like a big fort, like a bunch of seven-year-olds, you know, in a slumber <laughs> That's party. Awesome. And uh, so the way this has changed me is I used to not see the you know benefit of some of the sort of contrived rituals you might have in an office, you know, like, oh, so-and-so's cake is in the kitchen at four, you know, and now I will always go to those things. And it's particularly obvious during the pandemic, right? But this is why it's so important to get back to doing things in person when it's safe, because those, you know, you may feel it in your organization, right? Many people have reached out to me because of the amount of conflict internally that they're experiencing in their organization. They can't get anything done. And part of that is because the ratio is so out of balance. If you're only dealing with people on Zoom or Slack or email, you know, you really lose a lot of that nuance and that ability to have fleeting positive encounters when you walk by someone in the hallway and ask about their kid or, you know, those things really matter and they make it much more likely that you'll be able to stay in good conflict and not high. Amanda Ripley is the author of High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. Amanda, thank you so much for your work. Thank you, Dave. It's great to talk with you. As you'd expect, we've had many episodes over the years on conflict, several of them I'd recommend for you that are a good complement to this conversation. One of them is episode 91, How to Listen When Someone is Venting. Mark Golston was my guest on that episode. Mark and I talked about his three-step process for handling a situation where someone is coming at you with a lot of anger and venting. Tough customer situations, tough situations with a peer or colleague. If you find yourself in that situation occasionally, episode 91 is a wonderful framework to diffuse the situation a bit, allow cooler heads to prevail, and then be able to do the work of long-term helping to resolve the situation, of course. Episode 91 for that. Also recommended is episode 328, How to Deal with Opponents and Adversaries. My guest on that episode was Peter Block. Peter has done tremendous work throughout his career at helping us all to navigate organizational politics more effectively. His best-selling book, The Empowered Manager, is a great resource for that. And in episode 328, he walked us through his model for organizational politics and and how to really deal with what he calls opponents and adversaries in our organizations. Uh, most of us have both of those, and they are different 
How do we navigate that in order to be able to help everyone move forward? Episode 328 for details on that. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 380, How to Find Confidence in Conflict. My friend Kwame Christian was my guest on that episode. One of the invitations that Kwame makes, not only in that episode, but in his work, is thinking about the pacing of how we're handling difficult situations and negotiation. And he makes the invitation often to slow things down a bit. You hear that echoed in Amanda's work and in her book as well. A wonderful reminder for us when we are getting into those tough situations. That's episode 380. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. There's an entire category called difficult situations that is inside our free membership library. If you will go in there, click on that, you'll be able to find all these episodes plus many more that we've featured over the years on how to handle the toughest situations when they come up. The best way to start is just to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. That's going to allow you to access the entire library, searchable by topic, but also allow you to access the member cast, all of my book notes, the free audio courses inside the membership portal, and of course, my weekly leadership guide that comes every Wednesday with all the links from every episode, plus many more resources I found for you. Coachingforleaders.com is where to go to get that set up. And once you do, you'll have access to everything in just a few seconds. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Amy Gallo to the show. She is the co-host of Harvard Business Review's Women at Work podcast and also the author of the HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict. We're going to be exploring how to prepare for conflict, an important follow-up to this conversation. Join me for that chat next Monday with Amy. Have a great week.